Well, good morning, church. That's what Derek uh, said at the beginning. Now, last week I was in Malawi, and I introduced myself there by saying, Moni Umpingo, which actually means hello, church. And everyone replies, Zikomo, which means thank you. So that was uh, the same tradition across the world once again. Uh, I think there's some pictures. Um, yeah. <laughs> um, there's a, I've got a picture showing the last two Sundays where I've also been preaching, so I've been preaching twice there. Um, that was two weeks ago. Uh, I had two services. The first one, both, both filling the church building. The first one, there was a school associated here, so I ended up preaching to probably about 200, 250 young people as well as maybe 30 um, adults in an English service, which I think uh, and then second, uh, and then that was actually me preaching during during the service, which someone snapped and sent me. Notice uh, to share service. This is the second service, so I've got connects translating as I preach as well. And then the next one, uh, this was a week ago today. I, I moved from Blantyre up to the Long Way. Uh, that was the church service there. First Sunday of the month is Communion Sunday, so the ladies put on all their uh, women's fellowship outfits, which is what what that. Uh, uh, headdress and so on is. Uh, and then that's a uh, praise group at the front, performing, singing, dancing. I've actually got videos of this, but I didn't bring those up. And you can see another full church, and it was two services, one after the other. 6.30 start till 9, and then 9 until 12 or 12.30. So, um, and that was, so I finished just as you started, and I'd already done six hours of services. So, uh, very different to be back here now. Um, uh, and also, um, I enjoyed being part of your uh, members' meeting. I was just noticing everyone there in their coats, and there was I in short sleeve t shirt and absolutely sweltering. Um, but I just thought you'd like to see that was the last two Sundays. Okay. I think the switch is on your Is it not? this straight away to say, this is nothing prophetic to do with your church building project. <laughs> there is nothing on that front at all. It's actually taken from uh, verse 3 of the psalm. We're going to be looking together at Psalm 11. So if you could open in your Bibles, it's, it's a short psalm of seven verses, but it's absolutely packed with pictures and uh, and challenges for us in our lives today. I'll read this in a moment. Perhaps we just go to the next picture. We're going to be thinking about foundations crumbling in our, uh, potentially in our own lives and some of the challenges many of us face. But a year ago in Malawi, they had a massive storm. So literally, for many people in their houses, the foundations were crumbling. That's one lady standing by the remains of her house after 72 hours of continuous heavy rain. 
flash floods, deforestation means flash floods go straight through and so many of them through poverty do not have good foundations in place. So the mud mortar washes away, the stones collapse. Next please. Again, a lady with a baby in front of the remains of her house. So for these people, when the foundations are crumbling, is actually a literal experience. And we ran the field to at least help get something for them. Next, please. Uh, again, that lady, that's the remains of her home. Uh, and all the pots and pans for cooking and, and everything, and bedding and so on, are gone. So this does happen. That's, that's just in the area around where uh, our partners are based in Malawi. We move on again. Uh, this is the past week since I left Malawi at the beginning of the week. That's the school that we started up as a, uh, an income generating project. And they just had a massive storm came through and it's taken the classroom roof off just this week. Uh, and if you do the next one please, you can see. Just lifted completely off the school classroom. Um, so thankfully none of the girls that uh, we have in our, in our um, school education program were in there at the time um, and the main building over on the, the left, the main office building and so on is, is fine but, but this one's just had its roof lifted. It's not the foundations but it's, it's devastating. So these things are happening very much in, in, in a literal sense in, in many places. Um, but we get to think about those in our own lives as well. Okay, next please. So, when the foundations are crumbling. So, before I read the passage, I'm just going to, I always like to give you a little bit of a biblical interpretation teaching when I'm preaching. And I'm going to have just a little touch of that this morning. Uh, how to approach a passage like a psalm. The Bible has many different genres, types of writing in it, and it's important we understand what type of writing we're reading when we try to interpret it and apply it to our lives. So much of the Bible is narrative, wisdom, literature, parables. Narrative is, is literally telling a true story. Parables are, are stories, but they... They didn't really happen, but they're stories to illustrate uh, a point. So the Good Samaritan never existed, but of course there are many of us who would like to be Good Samaritans. Then there's letters, and a significant part of the Bible is poetry. And the whole book of the Psalms is poetry. So we have to be clear what poetry is how poetry conveys Bible truth to us. Otherwise you can misunderstand things. Poetry conveys, in the Bible, conveys Bible truth by using pictures to paint, um, words to paint pictures. So we must see it as, as being word pictures being painted, images. So let's read the psalm. And as we read through the words of the psalm, I'd like you to look out for the four different voices or participants who are contributing into the conversation within this poem, within this psalm, and the six or so different images 
that are being painted just in these seven verses. It's amazing how much is packed into a small space. We're then going to familiarise ourselves with the psalm by just looking at what those four different voices are, what those six different pictures are, and then we're going to apply it uh, across uh, the 3,000 years into, into our own lives here. So, Psalm 11. In the Lord I take refuge. How then can you say to me, flee like a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bows. They set their arrows against the strings to shoot from the shadows at the upright in heart. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord is on his heavenly throne. He observes the sons of men. His eyes examine them. The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked and those who love violence, his soul hates. On the wicked he will rain fiery coals and burning sulphur. A scorching wind will be their lot. For the Lord is righteous. He loves justice. Upright men and women will see his face. Amen. So there's four voices we can find in this psalm. First of all, the godly psalmist, David. He's clearly under some kind of pressure, some kind of personal danger when he's writing this. We don't know what it was or when it was in David's life. Some people connect it to the time that King Saul was chasing David into the wilderness in 1 Samuel 23. Others say it's when Saul threw that javelin, was using David as javelin throwing practice in, in 1 Samuel 19, before he was the king. Others place it later, after David had become the king, to the time of the rebellion of his son Absalom in 2 Samuel 15, when the foundations of his very throne were on the edge of crumbling. We don't know. And in some ways, the openness of this makes it easier for us to apply it into whatever may be the challenges we're facing in our own lives, whatever foundations in our own lives may feel as though they are crumbling. It's probably not unintentional the way these events are left open in Scripture. What we do know, though, is that David has decided upon his response to this challenge. He's made a choice up front in his life. He says in the beginning of verse 1, In the Lord I take refuge. He's not questioning it. So that's David. Second, his unhelpful advisors. You get these in the second half of verse 1 through to verse 3. 
Immediately after David's opening words, in the Lord I take refuge, then we hear another viewpoint. Those could be the words from some of David's group of companions who are out there with him, who are struggling under the, the pressure of being chased and being opposed. But equally, it could just be a voice inside David's own head. However decided on your course of action you may be, you can still have these voices questioning, have I made the right decision? Sounding off warnings in his own head. Whatever the identity of those voices, what they are saying to him is, David, what you're facing is just too big. Just run, flee. You are helpless in the face of this challenge. It's not in your control. They're arguing for a, a pragmatic response rather than a response of faith. Arguing against risk-taking for God. It's rather like Peter when he rebuked Jesus after Jesus announced that his way forward was suffering and death on the cross. That was to be the way ahead for him. It's not as if David was somebody who'd, who'd not lived by faith in the past, not taken risky steps. Remember, even when he was a youth, he faced up to Goliath and the Philistines as an act of faith. So, although these friends were acknowledging that David is righteous in the face of whatever this injustice, this challenge that he's facing in his life would be, what they're calling is for David to hide himself away, run away from the danger. They are saying to David, you go and create your own place of refuge. Whereas David is saying, Lord, in you I take refuge. Then there's the, the enemies of David, the ones who are seeking to attack and oppress him. And they're coming at him on multiple fronts at the same time. Because in many ways, sometimes when we face challenges, we feel they're coming on multiple fronts at us at the same time. It says these enemies, they're hiding in the shadows. Ah, those who oppose us and hide in the shadows are often the most difficult opponents to face up to. We can't see them, we don't know what they're doing. I know going back to school days, I faced some bullying at school and, and often it was, it was those who were hiding in the shadows, whispering to others, passing false rumours around that were the most difficult ones to deal with because you couldn't see your enemy face to face. And in verses 2 and 6, these people are using the same language as the well, much better known Psalm 1. They are called the wicked. Who are the wicked? Well, in these poetic terms, the wicked are those who act against God and against God's ways, in whatever way that is. And they are contrasted in verses 3 and 5 to the righteous, or the upright, verse 7, who are those who are seeking to discover and follow God's plans for them. So, the enemies of David, the third characters. And then the fourth one, 
is God himself in the conversation of this psalm. He is the one whose character defines what we mean by righteous. He is the one who, whose very nature, verse 7, is to be righteous. He is the one who, verse 7 says, loves justice. He is the one, verse 5, who hates violence. He is the one who sees everything and examines the hearts of everyone, whether they like it or not. Every one of us as well, verses 4 and 5. This psalm implies that ultimately the enemies of David are the enemies of God. And that God ultimately will be their judge and will be their destroyer. Verse 6. So that's the four voices that we have playing within this psalm. What about images? As I mentioned, poetry paints pictures using words. First of all, there are three pictures of the terrible threat that David was facing here. First one of fear. It's a picture of a frightened bird flying away to the safety of its familiar mountain hideaway, rather than staying put where it is in verse 2. Second is a picture of ambush. Unknown enemy archers hiding in the shadows with their arrows in their bows stretched out ready, taking aim. If only they can get a good shot at him. They're ready to release the arrows. And David's the target. Also verse 2. And then verse 3, there's this impending collapse. The foundations of a great building being undermined just like people's homes in those photos of Malawi had been undermined by the rushing flash-flooded water that came through at the end of January last year and brought so many of those houses down. They're threatening to bring down the whole stronghold, the basis of the security of that person. So that's three pictures we can see just in the first three verses. But then we get three pictures of the Lord God himself. And they stand in contrast. First, a picture of God's authority. In verse 4, you can see it says that David is asserting, despite all this challenge that's, that's going on in, in, in his life, he asserts that God is still on his throne in heaven. That heaven and God's throne is still the place where true power and true authority reside. And yet at the same time, God is intimately dwelling with people. <coughs> so he's in heaven on his throne, in the place of ultimate authority, yet intimately he's still with us in the midst of these troubles and challenges of life. The second picture is of what we call God's omniscience. In other words, his all-knowingness, the way he knows everything. That the eyes of God are seeing and remembering everything that's been done by all the people, whether they are the righteous or the wicked, the ones who ultimately want God's way 
or want to oppose God's way. Verses 4 and 5. God knows everything and we can't hide it from him. And then in verse 6, the third picture of, um, of God is, is God's final judgment and justice. I think as Christians we often run away from thinking about God's judgment. We think it's something, well, almost embarrassing in talking to people. We think it may be a bit of something that seems a bit vindictive. And yet, I find it really helpful if you closely tie together judgment and justice, social justice. God's judgment is the time when all those wrongs will be put right and when everything will be set back to what it should be. The picture here is that God will rain down judgment on the wicked, on those who oppose his ways, like firebombs out of a volcano. That's the sort of picture in verse 6. I once went to Japan when I was working as a scientist and I had a, a trip there and at the weekend someone took me up an active volcano and I looked down into the caldera and could see everything bubbling away and so on. But the path that wound its way up the, the slopes of the cone had these buildings all the way up it and they were there for a very good reason. They were places of refuge. Places of refuge for when it let off and all these, you know, firebomb things flew out. That you had somewhere, if it was happening, you could run to with a very thick concrete roof that would provide you with a place of some safety. There's echoes of the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah here in Genesis 19 in, in the pictures that are being painted. There's also a picture of a searingly hot, dry wind blowing through the wicked land, just causing everything to wither and to die. That seems a bit far away from us at the moment here. Um, and when I was in Malawi, it was the rainy season, but it was very hot and humid that time. Um, but I have been there in October one year before the rainy season when you just went to an open window and it was just like, you know what it is when you open your fan oven and you just get hit by the heat when you've had it on full? Well, that was what the windows felt like. There was just nowhere to escape uh, from this hot, dry wind uh, that just kills everything. So those are the pictures that are just contained in these seven verses of this wonderful psalm. So hopefully that gives us a bit, bit more familiarity with it now, because it's not one of the psalms that's most known. What should we learn then? Well, I think, first of all, what we ask, what's the key question in this psalm? What's the key question that David is asking? And I think that comes in verse 3, which is where I've set the, the header. Um, when the foundations are being destroyed, well, if we look into our own lives, what are the possible foundations that might be being destroyed that may seem to be crumbling for some of us? Well, for David, it was his life itself. It was possibly his kingdom. Any of those things. For us, well, so many of us know that we're going through this 
economic crisis at the moment. For some families, they are becoming homeless. They're forced to choose between heating and eating. And we've got this war going on. We were praying for that uh, also for the earthquake earlier. Uh, and the war in Ukraine. You know, these things going on around us, they are, for us and for the people who are caught up in this, they are like the foundations of their very existence. Everything that they see as stable is being challenged at this time by those things. But we also face another type of challenge, a moral and ethical one, in our own land, with the way laws are being changed, black is being called white, and white is being called black, and you are a hater if you challenge this. And that environment is growing and growing here. So morality is being undermined even more. And I'm not saying we should be surprised at this. As Christians, we should expect that. The challenge of the world will be different from the worldview that we hold with God in our lives. But the Bible is being attacked, its teachings are being ridiculed, and yes, even from within some parts of particularly the established church. And even some professing Christians are joining that rising tide of popular culture that is redefining what is truth. And voices seeking to uphold the biblical worldview of moral and ethical issues, they're often being vilified, shut down, deplatformed, as the saying goes. Biblical understandings of marriage, biblical understandings of gender, these are viewed as archaic and hateful. Family values are being undermined. And let's not try to soften this. These are like the archers hiding in the shadows, taking aim at us. What are we going to do? How do we respond? That's what I hope this psalm has to say to us today. The sanctity of life is being repeatedly challenged in Parliament, as well as the gender issues. Euthanasia, abortion on demand, and so on. God's worldview is being challenged. And it's no use any longer saying, well, I'm speaking because this is what the Bible says. The Bible is seen as a hate book by many. You know, for opponents of a godly worldview to undermine such foundations in society, it doesn't need a large amount of high explosive. What it needs is careful strategic placement and patience. And that's what many in these woke lobbies are doing. They're very patient and they're tapping away strategically placing charges. I think it was one of the Navarone films, a World War II film. There was some Allied operatives who were on a mission to destroy key bridge behind enemy lines to prevent the Nazis advancing. But the team had two little explosives, and there was only two or three of them, I think, 
to bring down the bridge directly. So what did they do? They went further up the valley and placed what little explosives they had against the foundations of a dam. And they knew exactly where the weak spot on the base of that dam was. That had been looked into. They were being strategic. And then they detonated those explosives. And at first, nothing seemed to be happening. But they waited patiently. There was a little trickle of water came through a few tiny cracks that had, had appeared. The water then opened up larger cracks. And those cracks grew and grew until eventually, with the weight of the water behind, the whole dam collapsed. Why did it collapse? Because the foundations had crumbled. There were weak points. They found those weak points and they utilised them. The surge of water rushed downstream and destroyed the key bridge that they wanted to get rid of. To destroy the foundations, you just need strategic placement and patience. And so much of that is happening within our society. Verse 3 again. When the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? What can the righteous do? Some people read that almost as a question of despair. When the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, well, nothing. That's our lot. That's what's coming our way. We just have to comply and keep our heads down and try not to upset the apple cart too much. They may say, well, at best, we can flee. We can hide. We can run to the hills like those birds in that picture. Or bury our heads in the sand in an ostrich-like way. We draw from the battle to uphold Christian ethics and morals. Batten down and we'll take care in our, our own finances and look after ourselves. And hope for the best for those other people. Admit defeat in the face of the power of the woke media and the politicians who go along with so much of it and the liberal pressure groups. Is that right? Simply stay quiet, keep heads down. That's how some would respond. But to do nothing is a choice in itself. And it's not the choice that David makes in this psalm, in the first half of the first verse. In the Lord, I take refuge. He's saying when the foundations of life are crumbling, and indeed, that there are indeed many things that the righteous can do in the face of those challenges. David makes some choices, active choices, that we can decide to do too. So let's think about our response to the foundations crumbling. In the next slide. Four things. First, be committed. Don't run away. Verses 1 to 3. Now, let's be clear. I'm not saying it's wrong to run away from persecution. Indeed, David hid from Saul for many years uh, until the time came for him to be king. And remember what Jesus said to his disciples. When they persecute you, by the way, not if... When they persecute you in one town, escape to another. 
run away. So when Christians are persecuted by ISIS in the Middle East, then they are not wrong to become refugees, to flee. But sometimes in our lives, there are times when we cannot escape. Whether it's the current pressures of, of, of finances and so on now, or this challenge that we're facing morally and ethically in our own society. And that's when we have to decide how we're going to face up to that. There are times when the Lord calls us to stand up and be counted as his, to face up to whatever comes our way as a consequence. David stood firm at one of these times, despite those contrary voices trying to pull him back from within his own band. He declared, in the Lord I take refuge. And for us, that opposition to Christian moral and ethical worldviews is only likely to increase. In Malawi, they feel the pressure of it because so many Western governments are placing conditions upon aid coming in that they start adopting some of these Western changes of view on marriage and, and so on. And abortion. And as I say, opposition for us is only likely to increase. When we speak out, yes, even gracefully and in love, then against these attitudes, then certainly we'll probably find we're vilified on social media, we might receive threatening messages. Some may lose out on jobs or promotion. We hear these things on the news or from the Christian Institute. And increasingly, we may fall foul of laws that our parliaments are passing and therefore may face police action, who themselves are often um, have movements within them that, that support these changes. So we must be very careful that the church does not cave into such pressures simply to curry human favour. A couple of verses here. 2 Timothy 3 verse 5 warns of a day when the lives of people in church will, and I quote, have a form of godliness but deny its power. Oh, that, that rings true, doesn't it? And 2 Timothy 4 verse 3, which I think I've put up on the, the screen here. The time will come, says Paul, when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires such as fit in with contemporary culture, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. Very contemporary, isn't it? So today is not a time to fear and hide away. We have freedom here to preach the gospel, but it's increasingly under challenge in our nation. When I go to Malawi, I actually feel freer preaching the gospel than I do here now. And I tell them there, they must work while it is day, as Jesus says, because the night will come when no man can work. But at the moment, Malawi is freer than here to preach the full gospel. But we must not just roll over and pretend to be dead. We can still speak out with words of grace, seasoned with salt, as it says in Colossians. Not salty words with a tiny bit of grace. 
but lots of grace, but seasoned with that edge of salt. We can write letters, we can sign petitions, we can refuse to be intimidated. But it takes a choice. So like David, we can only seek to take refuge in the Lord. In reality, there is nowhere else we can go and still maintain our integrity. Moving on, secondly, in verse 4, be calm. Remember, God is in control. However it looks, however it feels in your life today, God is in control. So we must hold on to that right view of God. We must replace any crumbling foundations in our own lives, the way we've built our lives, with secure new heavenly foundations. Now, this isn't just a a stay calm and carry on, like the t-shirts kind of approach. No, no. We mustn't flee, but most importantly, we must remember, verse 4, the Lord is on his heavenly throne. He hasn't come off it. David kept his eye on God, not on the threats that surrounded him. David knew that his security lay with the Lord. All those eternal foundations are still just as firm and secure as they have ever been. The King of Kings does remain in residence, sat on his throne of authority. In Malawi we'd say, Alleluia, and you'd say, Amen. Remember the cosmic Lord Jesus that we read about in Colossians chapter 1. He is still the sovereign ruler and he is still the sustainer of everything. Even if sometimes it doesn't look that way because we're in a fallen, broken world full of fallen, broken people. So while moral standards, financial controls, ethical foundations in society may seem to be crumbling, we must still keep our eyes fixed on him and take heart, be calm. God is still in control, says the psalm. Thirdly, be confident. Yes, God's judgment and therefore God's justice will happen. It's certain. Remember, even if no one believes in God, then God still exists. Even if no one believes that the Bible is God's word, then it is still true. Remember, even if no one listens to the teachings of the Bible, they will still be used as a basis of judgment on the last day. It's not about you creating your own truth. There is this absolute truth, and whoever may or may not believe in it, that truth stands firm and secure. As David writes in these last verses of this psalm, his God's eyes watch, he examines everyone. The Lord examines the righteous and the wicked. He hates the lover of violence. He will rain burning coals and sulfur on the wicked. A scorching wind will be their portion. God sees absolutely everything. He knows our every thought. He hears our every word. He observes our every action. God reads every heart and knows us better than we know ourselves. And he knows our needs better than we know ourselves. And one day, all those thoughts will be exposed. On that day, justice and righteousness will not only be done, 
but they will be seen to be done. Jesus said in Matthew 10, 28, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul. Rather be afraid of the one who can destroy both body and soul in hell. I don't know how often you've walked around the cemetery. They can be quite interesting places and peaceful places to walk around. And if you think about it there, in their little rows lie the wicked and the righteous, side by side. And on the whole, you cannot tell the one from the other. Maybe the odd thing written on the gravestone by relatives give a clue if there was a believer. But on the whole, you cannot tell the one from the other. They just lie in their parallel rows through the cemetery. But God knows the one from the other. The Bible is not a book full of empty threats for us. Judgment will come. Jesus says that very clearly. So many of his teachings talk about judgment. Often ones we try and gloss over and not read very much. Lots of his parables talked about judgment and consequences. We mustn't water down those solemn warnings. And if we move on to the Apostle Paul, there's a verse here from 2 Thessalonians, chapter 1, verses 6 to 10, which say this all very clearly. Paul writes, God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you. Justice will be done. And will give relief to you who are troubled, and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They'll be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people, the blessed, and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And this includes you, because you believed our testimony to you, because they became believers. So be confident, God's judgment will happen. And finally, be comforted. Verse 7 says, God will deliver his people. In the face of God's sovereign rule and the impending judgment of everyone, David concludes with some great words of comfort for the righteous, those who believe. For the Lord is righteous, he loves justice. The upright will see his face, I promise. But remember, we have to measure all these things against the whole of the rest of the Bible. If you read Psalm 130, verse 3, the psalmist writes, If you, Lord, kept a record of sins, Lord, who could stand? So who then are the upright that Psalm 11, verse 7 is referring to, who David says will be able to see his face? Who are the upright when all of us are sinners? You see, by and of our own merit, there is no one, none of us, no one except the Lord Jesus Christ is of their own merit in the upright. We are all part of the problem, just as the woke media and the rest are part of the problem. We are fallen. 
fallen followers of Christ. Not David, not you, not me. Of ourselves, we will all be numbered with the wicked. Let's not hide away from that. As Paul writes in the famous Romans 3.23, For everyone has sinned and falls short of the glory of God, God's glorious standard. But we rejoice that Romans 3 does not end at verse 23. It carries on into verse 24 and 25. Yet God, contrast, yet God, in his grace, we were talking about grace earlier, in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. He did this through Christ Jesus when he freed us from the penalty of our sins, for God presented Jesus as a sacrifice for sins. That's the good news of the gospel. God loves those who have been made righteous in his sight, but they're only made righteous by him, by grace. How? Through us having faith in Christ. Because then, the wicked have exchanged their sinfulness for Christ's righteousness. By his grace alone, they have become the upright in this psalm. They have become the righteous, not because of the good things we do. The good things we do are our response to this wonderful gift of grace. And you know, that applied retrospectively to David and all those Old Testament heroes who came before Jesus, all those centuries before, and it's available now as a free gift to you and to me. Be comforted. God will deliver his people. That deliverance is available to every one of us today. So conclusion, we're all facing troubles in life. For some it's health, for some it's finance, for some it's being challenged over upholding biblical values in our workplaces, in our families, in our lives. And we're tempted to flee from the arrows, to run away from those crumbling foundations that we've built our own families and lives upon, or the crumbling foundations of our society. But by trusting in the finished work of the Lord Jesus Christ, that gives us confidence and strength, just like David, to face uncertainty, yes, even to face danger, to take steps of faith, to take risks for the gospel. Our hope of final victory does not come from ourselves. We're in the wrong track if we think it does. It comes from the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. Our crumbling foundations have already been replaced if we are trusting in Christ today. Our lives are now built on that solid rock foundation of Jesus Christ. And all other ground is sinking sand. The wise man built his house on the rock. The foolish man built his house on the sand, said Jesus in his story. And like Jesus, knowing that, like David rather, knowing that should lead us to worship. And it should lead us to hope. It should lead us 
to joy, even in the midst of some of the deepest sorrows we may be facing. Deepest tragedies, it should still lead us to worship, hope, and joy. For us to take refuge in God, not in ourselves, not in our man-made refuges, and not to rely on our own resources for the future. And then just to seek to follow him more and more each day and to serve those around as a response to that grace that we have come to know. Keep your eyes fixed on Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this psalm, for the challenges it gives us, and yet 3,000 years on from when it was written, for the relevance it has to the challenges we face in our lives today. Lord, we pray that you will help us to take refuge only in you, not to build our own refuges, not to run away from the challenges we face, and uh, also to seek to worship you with hope and joy and to serve others as a result of knowing the grace that you have given so freely to us that we stand righteous before you rather than condemned. Thank you, Lord Jesus, and we pray that you'll help us to go out this week to live to your praise and glory. In Jesus' name.